Hey, everybody. Welcome to Bedside Matters. This is the podcast that addresses the medical issues that impact every single one of us every single day. And we'll hopefully give you the answers you're looking for so you can be more informed and healthier. I'm Peter Tilden. I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper. Hi, David. Good morning, Peter. Also, Anna Vicino. Good to see you, Anna. Good afternoon. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. I know why. So if people I don't know are what time of day people are listening. So I figured let's give them different. Good evening. Sleep well. Have a nice weekend whenever you're yes, listening. Exactly. So I think we've covered everything. <laughs> That's right. Today we're covering some fun stuff. Number one, menopause, one of my favorite topics, uh, talking about night sweats, hot flashes, all that good stuff. And then we're going to discuss hacking your thoughts, which I think is kind of crazy sounding. We're in a different world when it comes to access to your brain. Also, and this just happened, this is fascinating, an ultrasound that treats brain cancers, which is stunning. And then ticks, it's tick season and Lyme disease season. And you should know about that, how to treat it, how to know if the symptoms you're experiencing are actually Lyme disease. But David, let's kick it off with menopause. I'm very curious about this myself as someone who experiences the hot flash or the night flush or the night flash flush. So first, I think we should define what menopause is. There's a lot of confusion now with people about what actually is menopause, when is it triggered. It's defined as 12 months after your last period. So to truly be at least technically in menopause, you have had to not had a period for 12 months. The average age in the United States is around 51, and the more important metric is when your mother went into menopause, because these are genetically determined issues. Remember now, at birth, you're given a certain number of eggs in the ovary. And that number of eggs translates into when your menopause is going to be delivered. We can also estimate that pretty carefully with how many eggs you have in the basket, which gives some people some understanding and planning as to how much longer they'll be producing eggs. So that being said, the most common menopausal symptom that we deal with are hot flashes. And for any woman that's gone through perimenopause, which is that period before menopause, which can be up to a couple of years, or menopause, or for a 10-year period around that same perimenopause, menopausal time, hot flashes are extremely uncomfortable. They're predictably occurring at night. They wake people up. It's pajama-changing, sheet-changing experiences that are very uncomfortable, not only for the woman, but if there's someone in bed with that woman, it's a very complicated and problematic issue. The bigger issues now are how can we treat these effectively without creating problems? Typically, we've been giving people estrogens beyond uh, the onset of menopause to control these. Well, that's fine in some people, but not okay in people that have had estrogen-sensitive illnesses like breast cancer. There are breast cancers that are sensitive to estrogen. Estrogen can become a growth factor in these uh, cancers, and those are the more common cancers that we see that are estrogen-dependent. Uh, we have now come up with a medication that treats hot flashes in a non-hormonal way. This medicine is called Veosaw, V-E-O-Z-A-H, and it targets the temperature control center in the hypothalamus. 
And there are two specific chemicals in the hypothalamus that dysregulate the temperature control center during menopause. Just for clarification, this one is called kispeptin, and the other one is called neurokinin B. And the VOSAW is an antagonist to these two chemicals that come from the hypothalamus. So it antagonizes these chemicals so that the dysregulation doesn't happen, a couple double negatives here, and that you can actually regulate your hypothalamic temperature control much better. Jeez. It's so a question. Daily. Go ahead. Sorry. No, finish. No, I no, wanna... no, please go ahead. I, I was wondering, so is the hot flash a, a product of a by, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Is the hot flash because you lose your estrogen and then your hypothalamus can't regulate? Or is it something like, is it a necessary thing that needs to happen in this process? Or is, should we look for this medication to go ahead and regulate it better? So it is a consequence of losing your estrogen. The hypothalamus becomes dysregulated because of these two chemicals. And this is going to happen to everyone that goes through this. Some women actually get through this without hot flashes, but it's incredibly rare. This pill, it's a daily pill, uh, is about 50% effective in treating this, which for women that have experienced this is a big number and certainly a welcomed relief. The problem with, again, is giving hormones, not only for breast cancer, but if we give hormones to regulate this, you have the risk of stroke, blood clots, and other hormone-related issues by supplementing estrogen after your menopause. Uh, Side effects are minimal, and it's very inexpensive, this medicine. I think they've estimated the co-pays for general insurance is to be somewhere between $35 and $65. So it's not going to be prohibitive for people that are seeking some relief. And do you, how, how often do you have to take it? it? The thing I thought of right away, though, this is how sick I am, is that it controls the therm- basically the thermostat. So my father probably would be against this if he was still alive because he's the one. He said, don't touch the thermostat. You can't control any. You can't control anything. <laughs> My mother, my mother's temperature and flat. No, don't touch the thermostat. That's my father's job. But that said, is there a ne- is there how often do you have to take it? Is there a negative because now you're stopping something from happening in the brain? Is there a side effect that's a downside that you're? I mean, the brain. We've learned that everything has a function for a reason. So if you're stopping the brain from functioning in, in a way, what is it impeding that may have a negative impact? Good question. Back to your father for a minute. I don't think your father probably went through menopause. So for him to keep you <laughs> off the thermostat made some sense. But there there are side effects. The side effects are, are, are interesting. There can be liver and kidney problems. You can also have some less serious side effects like abdominal pain, diarrhea, insomnia. These are rare. And they, again, if a woman has to balance these potential side effects against the benefit, they're going to go for the medication. Are the side effects happening because the hypothalamus also regulates that stuff and is impacting it? Or other organs are taking this medication, trying to get it out, and that's that's the effect? That's exactly right, Peter, the latter. Because medications, toxins, all the things that we put into our system are eliminated either by the liver or the kidney metabolized by those two organs. So it's it has to do with the metabolism of this medication. 
Got it. The other question I have for all of you, growing up, we've all heard commercials for product. I'm just fascinated. When did this, this, the term moderate to severe, <laughs> it used to be, <laughs> yes. you had this, you had that. Now everybody has moderate to severe psoriasis, moderate to severe migraine, moderate to severe. <laughs> Is that it, medically now, are they, have they expanded? Are there parameters for that? Well, that's the old joke to a doctor. A doctor says to a patient, you know, this is this is really no big deal. But if the doctor was having that procedure it's or that, it would be a huge deal. So right. I think when, when, we, when we try to identify issues as moderate or severe, it depends on who's identifying it. Right. And to so me, it, if I have diarrhea, it's severe. Yeah, any diarrhea. To one who is experiencing moderate, moderate to severe diarrhea. And by the way, do people sit at home going, you know what? This is just below the moderate line. I think I'm trivial, trivial to moderate. I'm not moderate to severe. This is why I mentioned that women are going to be extremely happy about this new medication because even a 50% reduction, and in some people, it's greater than that. It's an average 50%. So there's some people that are getting a greater reduction in these hot flashes. Any reduction in hot flashes is going to be welcomed. Especially at night. We got to sleep through the night. We, 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 we're not sleeping through the night, ladies. It's just not happening. It's not good. David, what's the impact before we move on to sexual function too with this? Is it decreased sexual desire? Does it increase? Does it, is it Zero effect, zero impact. Have there been any reporting on that? Zero effect because it's, again, it's not really affecting your levels of estrogen, which have direct correlation to sexual functioning. It's really just hitting, as you said, Peter, the thermostat. God, that's fascinating that they can target it to that point of the brain. Amazing. Let's move on and talk about hacking our thoughts. How, what, is this another AI thing? Are we going to chat GPT our thoughts? What's going on, Doc? It's combined with some AI technology, absolutely. But there are a group of neurotechnologists at the University of Texas in Austin that came up with this iteration of what has been going on for many years about how we can read people's thoughts and get into the brain and understand how that correlates and what we can do to, to interact with that. There have been in the past up to 40 people that have had implantable electrodes to do exactly this, to understand speech patterns and how to basically how to manipulate those. Uh, this is new technology that is non-invasive. What they do is that they have taken these sensors and they have embedded them in a hard hat or a baseball cap, and they are able to capture gamma waves, brain waves, in the speech areas. And they have people listen to a story or silently imagine a story. And they recorded 44 different speech sounds uh, in doing this. They then integrate these wave patterns with hours. And I'm talking 16 hours uh, for each participant that's been studied of a an MRI that's called a functional MRI. What a functional MRI is that it measures blood flow patterns to different parts of the brain. So when certain words or thoughts or feelings are expressed in the brain, you see certain areas of the brain light up with more blood flow or less blood flow. They then integrate the wave patterns with the functional MRI blood patterns, and they 
give this to AI that then creates a huge database. And in doing that, they can recognize and associate these wave patterns and these blood change patterns and actually spit out a written text of what is being said and what is being thought and what is being read. Now, it's not perfect technology. It's getting the general idea of what you're what the input is, but you're certainly getting the gist and it's extremely accurate. And it is not, there's good and bad in this. I think obviously the good is that this can help people that are unable to speak. Someone that's had a stroke, somebody that has ALS, but they're certainly thinking. So to be able to capture their thoughts and have these printed out and be able to communicate with these people that were previously unable to speak with. In today's This Just Happened, I mean, every week This Just Happened is pretty fascinating because it's breakthroughs in medicine. But this is just astounding that they're trying to figure out new ways to trick the blood-brain barrier to get through it. And now the latest version of this, David, if I'm correct, is ultrasound to treat brain cancers, which is stunning if this works. Yes, and we can talk about this in a minute, but the extension of this concept is amazing. To clarify what the blood-brain barrier is, it's a barrier made up of diffuse cells that separate the blood system between the general circulation and the circulation in the brain. So these are specialized cells, and their job is to protect the brain tissue itself from microorganisms that might be invading toxins. But the bad news with this is that it also inhibits certain drugs that would be great to treat brain diseases whether it's cancer, seizures, uh, other things that can happen, infections that happen in the brain. One good example of the blood-brain barrier and how it works, we all know that people that have allergies take allergy pills, and the older allergy pills would sedate people. If you take a Benadryl, you're going to be a little sedated. It, it gets through the blood-brain barrier. Well, there are some things that are kept out of the blood-brain barrier, like these newer antihistamines, Claritin and Zyrtec, they don't get into the brain, therefore they don't sedate people. So there's some advantage of the blood-brain barrier and things that we're already using. In Chicago at Northwestern University, they came up with this technology. It's an MRI-guided ultrasound that is able to pierce the blood-brain barrier. And it also uses microtubules uh, that are injected into the bloodstream. And these things actually help these capillaries that normally protect the blood-brain barrier. It sort of opens this up so that we can actually deliver things through the blood-brain barrier with the ultrasound. They work together. And they study this in gliomas. Gliomas, glioblastomas are the worst cancer you can get. They have a terrible prognosis. It's measured in months and the treatments are awful. And the treatment that we do use is something called paxotaxel. And paxotaxel works great, but the problem is they can't get it into the brain in, in high enough concentrations. So it's really not that effective. So this is what they did. They studied people that had recurrent gliomas and they brought them in and they did a craniotomy where they actually removed a part of the skull over where the tumor was. They dissected as much of the tumor as they possibly could and then they delivered the 
paxlitaxel intravenously. And then they measured in the bloodstream how much actually got in, and they could measure this also in the brain. So they measured these concentrations. Then they fit a device on the inside of the skull that delivered ultrasound waves. So it's a small device that they put on the inside. They put the skull piece back on, and a few weeks later, they turned on this device, this MRI-guided ultrasound device. They injected these microtubules intravenously so that they could actually get what was going to be the paxlitaxel into the brain. And then they measured how much paxlitaxel got into the brain tissue. And it was three and a half times more concentrated with the ultrasound. So the ultrasound, combined with these microtubules that allowed some penetration, delivered this incredibly higher concentration. And these people, their lifespan was dramatically extended with this. And this treatment is not just one treatment. When you're getting paxitaxel, they do this over 18 weeks. It's pulsed once a week for three weeks, and then it, it goes on. But it goes on for, you know, almost four months. So the survival in these people was markedly enhanced. So this opens up a really interesting conversation about if we can get paxitaxel into the brain for cancer, what are we going to be able to do with things for seizures, infections, psychiatric medications? They've done this with Parkinson's. They're Uh, phase three clinical trials on Parkinson's patients that have dramatically improved. So with Parkinson's, David, I know a lot about this because my mom had Parkinson's and I studied it. You have a part of the brain that's gone dark that doesn't produce dopamine anymore, the substantia nigra. And the problem is with all of this stuff, the stuff that does get in the brain, the body fights to get it out quicker. Does this re-innervate the substantia? Does it, does the substantia nigra start working again or are they just able to get a higher concentration of dopamine directly into the brain to battle the Parkinson's so they don't have to give it something that tricks it crossing the blood-brain barrier and becoming dopamine? It's the latter, Peter. You're very smart. And the, the concentration of these medications goes up. So if, the, if they're getting more of this medication and extend this from the brain cancer to Parkinson's or getting right. more of these dopaminergic medications. Uh, and again, I, I think what's really interesting about this is that people that are having seizures, people that have brain infections, um, it's just, and, and the psychiatric medications that we give people are going to change based on this, I believe. But is it like, with back to Parkinson's for a minute, because it's a good model. So if you can get more in there, does this arrest, I know they can't stop Parkinson's, but will it arrest the Parkinson's and slow it down because you can get more in? Or is it just treating the Parkinson's better as it progresses? That's what we've been seeing. We've been seeing that it slows progression, that it actually has reversed some of the negatives so that people are improving. Again, these are phase three clinical trials. I, I don't mean to disseminate information that isn't accurate so that there's still a lot more work to be done. Right. But it looks like it's a promising technology for this. And is there downside? It seems that ultrasound seems to be um, not as intrusive. Is there a downside to the ultrasound that, that, that the body experiences? Not that we can see. And remember now, we're, we're doing a craniotomy anyhow to try to resect as much tumor as we can. So it's not like we're doing a new, whole new procedure. We've got, got the we've got the part of the skull 
before we tack it back on, we put this little device in there. And there you have it. Do we have a sense of how soon this could possibly be out to market? Yeah, that's what I want to know. Being is that I'm somebody with a personal vested interest in having a family member with a glioblastoma. I'm very intrigued by this. Well, they're doing it now. If you if you go into the University of Texas at Austin, if you go into their website, you'll find that these experiments are not only are they helping to increase the concentration, but they're also going to extrapolate this into other medical centers. So I, the technology is now established. Now they just have to fine-tune it and get it out there. Can somebody wow. like Anna's family member, though, reach out to the university now and still get potentially into a, a subject group? My feeling on all of these clinical trials, if you know that there's a clinical trial that's going on that affects somebody in your life and there's a potential to improve their outcomes, I would personally contact those centers. I would try to speak to the people that are running these programs and give them exactly that kind of plea. Look, I have a family member. How do I get into these trials? Uh, when will they be available? These are all very good questions, Anna, that I think you can ask directly to these okay, people great. that are conducting the trials. So Dr. Kipper in Hey, What About Me this week, Rachel has a question. Hi, Dr. Kipper. I have a question for you about Lyme disease. Um, back about 25 years ago now at this point, I was in college in upstate New York. I was really sick. I went to the infirmary. They diagnosed me with Lyme disease. Uh, they were pretty confident that they caught it really early on because I still had that, you know, telltale bullseye bite mark on my arm. Um, so I was treated with, if I can remember back then, I was treated with antibiotics for a few weeks and that was that. Um, now, all these years later, I still get what I feel could be flare-ups from the Lyme disease, some residual symptoms like aches and exhaustion. It's really, you know, off and on for all these years. Anytime I've gotten a Lyme test since, it comes back as negative. But is it possible that I am still experiencing these symptoms and that they are from when I had Lyme disease? Rachel, it's an excellent question and a very confusing illness. And let me just back up a little bit and just talk about Lyme disease for a, a moment. The disease comes from ticks. These are tick bites. And the season for tick disease is from March to October. And that season is elongated now because of climate warming. There's longer periods of warm weather. And the disease transmits bacteria, viruses, and parasites uh, when the tick is sucking the blood. Uh, these ticks are very hard to identify because they're really the size of a poppy seed. So if you think about that, it's not like you're seeing a big animal. They do swell several times their body size after they've been sucking your blood. And once they get big enough and they've had enough of a meal, they can fall off. But generally, these things hang on. And what you what you need to know to do about this is to pull them off, but pull them off very carefully with tweezers. You want to make sure that you don't just pull the body off because you're going to leave the head and the mouth. That's going to stay in there and that's going to continue to cause infection. Um, you don't want to scratch these because you're again, you're going to be spreading these bacteria around. If you suspect that you have the disease. And Rachel, you mentioned that you had that that bullseye rash. The bullseye rash is 
is definitive for Lyme disease. Only about a third of people get that rash. So not everybody is going to know they had a tick bite from the, the Lyme bacteria. And the rash looks like a red circle, and in the middle is where you had the bite. These bites might take a month before they show up, so you have to be you know, diligent if you think that you may have been exposed. Uh, we were hiking last week in Vermont, a group of us, and <laughs> everybody knew that they had Lyme disease after that hike. And I'll be interested to see if anybody had Lyme disease. But so you you have to really look at yourself and you and also pets if you there was a dog on the trail with us. So you have to inspect yourself and, and the animals to see if you can find the tick or the rash. The interesting thing about Lyme disease, if you catch this within the first 14 days, and you know that you had the bite and you start an antibiotic, it's usually doxycycline. And you take a course of doxycycline right away, you're not going to get the disease. It's going to fix it. It's going to cure it. Um, if you if you wait, however, and you're not sure or didn't know you had it, there there are a few different stages of this disease, which makes it very, very hard to diagnose because the symptoms are generic for a lot of other illnesses. And there's a sort of a specific pattern to the illness. The first thing you get with the, with the bite is you get like a flu-like syndrome where your muscles ache, you might get a little fever and nothing really too specific. And then that can go away. And then a few months later, there are cardiac manifestations. So people can get arrhythmias, they can get rapid heartbeats, they can get atrial fibrillation, they can get things in the electrical system of the heart. And again, this was a couple months after you've been bitten, you didn't even know you were bitten. So now you're going to the cardiologist or your internist to have this worked up without really understanding where this came from. And then a few months after that, usually it's about six months after the bite, you're going to get neurologic symptoms. And these neurologic symptoms can be anything from uh, facial palsies to nerve pain. You can get arthritic symptoms. So it's a very difficult disease to diagnose. Making it more difficult is that there are several different species uh, of these ticks that can deliver the bacteria. And so it's, it's hard to diagnose. The treatment is really controversial now. People tend to give multiple antibiotics over long periods of time, which have their own negative effects on your microbiome. And we're not really sure that we're fixing any of this either. So that I've had patients that have had Lyme disease for years, symptoms for years, and they've gone to these Lyme specialists and they've had all these antibiotics. They're no better. Their symptoms are no different. So it's a, it's a very complicated problem. There was a vaccine that was developed few years, several years ago, actually, it was called <laughs> Limerix, and it was developed from a veterinary product that was a vaccine. And it was around for about four years, I think, and then it was taken off the market because they thought there were these side effects that really never panned out to be related to the Limerix. Pfizer is now, so it's off the market. It's no longer coming back. Pfizer is coming out probably in 25, 2025 with a vaccine for Lyme disease. So help is around the corner. So the, the take-home message to Rachel and everybody else is that be careful when you're in an exposed area during that period of time. 
these ticks, they like warm areas, so they like to get into the armpits and the groin and anywhere that the body has an extra amount of heat. Be sensitive. If you have been in these exposed areas, you, you be diligent in the way you check your skin. Uh, pets, if you have them and they've been with you. And when you get any of these symptoms that I've just discussed, and they seem to correlate with a period of time when you may have been in an exposed area, even if it was for months before, you have to think of this. And by then, again, the treatment options become very limited. The specialists in this disease are um, giving a lot of medications that can create problems uh, down the line in, in other ways. Uh, so be careful. So when you're out hiking, let's, let's go to prevention. When you're out hiking, lather yourself in insecticides and keep spraying yourself. This, this group of us, <laughs> about eight of us, and there was one person in the group. Um, I love my wife. This was my wife. She had the spray can of the insecticide, and she was spraying us about every 15 seconds, and everybody was trying to avoid her by the end of the hike. But you could actually see some of these, these things that were attaching to us. They may not have even been ticks, just falling off. So regular insecticide use, tuck your pants into your socks, try to limit the exposure that these little ticks can get into. And when you get done with your hike, shake your clothes off, put them in the dryer, that'll kill what's there. And call your doctor if you get any symptoms that are anything related to what we've just discussed. The message and takeaway I get is just say no to hiking. If I've got to dress up <laughs> like the guys from, from NASA who captured E.T., um, I'm not going hiking. I got this spray for because um, my friend travels a lot, and I'm about to do a lot of traveling, and I got this spray that you spray on the inside of your suitcase, and you could spray it on your camping gear. and all your, I can't remember what the, it begins with a P, the, the chemical in it, but it's supposedly safe, and but it keeps them away. And I, and I realize when I go to the East Coast and to the land of ticks, otherwise known as Long Island, like that I need to like make sure I'm covered in this stuff because I'll be, I'll be that person on the hike who will get the, the tick and the thing. And the, I, I just don't, I don't want to be that person. And I want to hike. I want to go outside. To Anna's point, like I'm one of those guys that gets a mosquito bite and it swells up to 10 times the size. Yeah. It's like a golf ball. You're like, Does what? that mean that the, the ticks also, they're talking to the mosquitoes going, this is the guy? Yeah. We smell them. We don't know that for sure, but I mean, there are people and some people think it's because of your blood type. Some people think right. that it's, you know, a, a sort of a, an ethnic racial thing that some people are more predisposed. But I think that prevention is really important, knowing that you're predisposed if you're in, in a hiking area. And it doesn't just have to be the Northeast anymore. It can be anywhere. We get these in the West Coast. Oh, so thank goodness. It's not, it's not oh, limited. No. It's not limited. <laughs> they, they move so slowly. How did they get here? How long did it take? Did they all get together years ago and guys, 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 you want to be near the ocean? Let's it's go. manifest destiny for the bugs. <laughs> well, they travel, you know. They Dogs travel, people travel. There are Lewis, Lewis and Clark ticks who said, we can do better than this than Pennsylvania. Let's go. <laughs> all right, let's do a recap of today's show. Anna, you want to take us through the recap? So to recap today's show, we uh, discussed an option, a new option with very little side effects for hot flashes. Vioza, it's available now. It's non-hormonal, and it cuts this problem back by at least 
And then we talked about how your thoughts can be read by computers. And this is evolving technology. It's complicated in its uh, administration. It has some risks and downsides, but it's an evolution of things to come. Also, ultrasound to treat brain cancers was today's, hey, this just happened. Very exciting technology now that can deliver medication through the blood-brain barrier. And this is going to apply not just for cancer, but we see this as applicable to treating seizures, to treating mental illness, treating infections in the brain. And in our Hey, What About Me? The question was about ticks and Lyme disease and the fact that 90% of David's hiking group is probably about to get sick. Avoid hiking during March <laughs> to October. Stay indoors always. Oh, but, well, you know what? Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, follow us at bedsidematters.org. And don't forget, visit Anna Vicino's uh, website, Eat Happy Kitchen. She's got the cookbooks, the recipe boxes, the sauces, the spices. And of course, if you want to control your brain and your behavior, the book Override by Dr. David Kipper is available. If you procrastinate, if you overeat. As a matter of fact, if you've heard about the book and haven't gotten it yet, the book will <laughs> yeah. help you buy the book. That's because right. you can get over procrastination once you know The information on Bedside Matters should not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. The information on Bedside Matters is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.